Naturally, we want to start in Malachi chapter 2. The go-to scripture for the birth of Jesus sermon. There are 400 years between the events that took place recorded in Malachi and the New Testament account, which obviously begins with the birth of Jesus. And I want to talk to you about that and kind of set the stage for the wonderful things that the Bible tells us about our Savior. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, the last verse in the chapter, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, Wherein have we wearied him? When you say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, Where is the God of judgment? Now, the reason I started with this, um, uh, this scripture, and there's a lot more to the prophecy and, and things that God was speaking to Israel earlier in the book of Malachi. <clears throat> but the condition of the, state of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, was that they had given up, they meaning the majority of the people, had given up on trying to keep the word of the Lord, trying to keep the law of Moses, because they very simply said, what good does it do? And so when Malachi the prophet speaks by the inspiration of the, of the Holy Ghost and draws that to their attention, their whole thing is, don't judge me. Their society is very much like ours is and has become recently at least. And so the prophet is trying to show the people how to correct what they've done and the difficult and unprofitable position that they put themselves in with the Lord. Go to chapter 3. You know that Malachi didn't write in chapter and verse any more than you would. So he's continuing on. He said, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. It wasn't at that point. And so God's trying to get the people to get back to the place where he can bless them and honor them. Verse 5, And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you say, or you would respond, wherein shall we return? What have we done? Where have we done wrong? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now you call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up or lifted up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. So it wasn't everybody. There was still a remnant, and there has always been a remnant of people that will keep their hearts turned toward God. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serves him. Then shall you return and discern between the wickedness, or between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall not leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him, in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come smite the earth with a curse. The condition of Israel in the last of the prophets of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is very well identified in the scriptures that we just read. Not only are they not serving God, not only are they not walking in obedience to the law that was given to them, but many are claiming that the right to, to not do so. And when the prophet begins to bring reproach by the word of the Lord unto the people, not because God's trying to destroy them. He certainly had a right to do that if that's what his intent was. But when he tries to bring correction and show them how to change, their thing is, what do we do wrong? We're okay. Malachi, you shouldn't judge us like that. This begins, following Malachi's prophecy, it begins a, a period of time of 400 years when God did not speak to his people. They are the silent years. Now a lot of things happened during those 400 years. 
Malachi's prophecy is somewhere around 430 B.C. And over the next 400 years, some terrible things take place regarding the, the people in the nation of Israel. They're conquered by the Syrians. They're conquered by the Egyptians. They're conquered by the Persians. They're conquered by the Greeks. Alexander the Great made Israel part of his conquest. But there's an interesting story behind the, uh, the domination of Israel by Greece. And that is when, uh, when Alexander the Great came to the, uh, approached the city of Jerusalem, the rabbis went out to meet him. And they asked for a place or an audience with him, which he granted. And he showed them from Old Testament prophecies where he was prophesied about. And he was so impressed with it and, and, well, I don't know whatever other word to use. He was so impressed by it, he allowed Israel to become part of the Greek conquest without going to war against them. And it created a situation where he was confronted with prophecies that had been completely fulfilled, that he knew had been fulfilled. He knew the things that were being shown him were written hundreds of years before he ever came on the scene. And in that respect, Israel was different than any other part of the Greek empire. He had respect under, under the God of Israel. Didn't keep him from dominating the, the people. Didn't keep him from conquering them. But there was no bloodshed in his conquest regarding Israel. Well, then came the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian empire that took Israel captive as well. And so one after another, one power after another power, a previous power, overran the people of Israel. And there were some really uh, significant things that took place when the Persians conquered Israel, and they had done this uh, before, many years before, but they rose to power and took Israel captive again. They were familiar with the, the, uh, the Jewish people, the rebellious nature of the Jewish people, I should say. And as a result, their intent was to do away with everything that they perceived to be the basis for the Jews' rebellion, which was the word. So they did away with the priesthood. And the king of Persia sold the priesthood to those that wished to possess it because they understood that whoever controlled the temple worship controlled the people. And so it became a, a bidding war, so to speak, between different factions. None of them were Jewish. None of them were in a position to offer true service unto God. And so the worship of Israel became a political thing. It became a cultural thing. They lost all sense inside of God. Now, it was this environment that Jesus was born into. Jesus had very little respect for the priesthood throughout his earthly ministry. He railed against the priesthood, calling them hypocrites, snakes, 
whited sepulchers and so forth. Because the, the leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, the leaders of the people really had very little respect for God one way or another. Now, after the Persians were defeated, they tried to restore the priesthood. But what they were left with is what we see in evidence through the four Gospels. Now, Jesus comes on the scene. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, about the birth of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. <clears throat> now Matthew gives us an account of the birth of Jesus that's really just a synopsis or a summary. Matthew puts, and, and this is by the direction of the Holy Ghost. I'm not criticizing it at all or saying it should have been a different way. But Matthew puts more emphasis on the lineage of Jesus being descended from David than he does the actual birth itself. Now he gives us some information about Joseph being warned in a dream or spoken to by the Lord in a dream that's, uh, that's very important. But many years after Matthew's account, Luke is impressed of the Lord to write a, uh, an account of the time of, of Jesus here on the earth. Now we know who Luke was. Luke was part of Paul's company. He was a physician. He got saved under Paul's ministry apparently. He was part of Paul's traveling company for a period of time, an extended period of time. Not on every missionary journey, but on the last two. And Luke is known according to historical documents. Even Josephus, the historian, gives us some information about Luke. <clears throat> Luke's reputation was such that, how do I say this? Um, everybody revered his account because they knew how thorough and detailed he was. Luke lived at a time where he could interview, personally, many of the people that he talks about and, and refers to. And so he gives us some tremendous detail. A lot of the detail that he gives us had to have come from Mary. Matthew mentions Mary, but Luke gives us an account of how everything came about when it was just her and the angel. Now, one of the things that, that speaks to me about Luke's gospel in this respect, not only in this respect, but this one specifically, 
for the purpose of our message this morning is that when John, many, many years later, like 35 years later, when John pins his gospel, he didn't tell us anything about the beginning or the birth of Jesus. And the only explanation you can attach to that is that he knew Luke's account covered it all. So I want to start in Luke now, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. If you haven't figured it out yet, my message this morning is mainly reading all the Bible (laughs) and making a couple of comments as we go. At least that way I know it will be anointed. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without or outside at the time of the incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. That was part of Malachi's prophecy. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in age or in years. And the angel answering said, Unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. Folks, I want you to understand something. And this is one of the greatest miracles of the Bible. One of the greatest miracles of the Bible is that God came in upon this scene, upon Zacharias, and kept his mouth shut so that God's will could be accomplished. We see clearly the angel said, Gabriel said, this is because you don't believe. Now, folks, you can't find one other place where God usurps somebody's will. And, and I, I, I hesitate to use that phrase because God never usurps a person's will. But Zechariah is in such a position, such a condition, even as a priest, to not believe the things that the angel is telling him. 
that in order for these things to come to pass, which he certainly would have desired and did desire, God knows the only way that it can happen is that if it is not spoken against by Elizabeth and Zechariah. So he closes Zechariah's mouth. Now this is a type of, or maybe even a fulfillment of, the things that we saw in the Old Testament. Do you remember when uh, the children of Israel went against the city of Jericho? You remember the instruction that God gave them? He told them, the city is already yours, but this is how you take it. Every day for six days, they marched around the walls of the city of Jericho. The seventh day, they did it seven times. But they were commanded for all that week not to say a word. Now, it's unclear whether they weren't allowed to speak just when they were marching around the city of Jericho or if that week was a week of silence. There's no way to really tell. You can make an argument both ways and have some pretty credible evidence on your side. But at the end of that seventh time on the seventh day, they were instructed to shout. Now, why did God require of them silence? I personally believe it was the whole week, not just when they were around the city of Jericho. And the reason that I believe that is because it's hard for me to imagine that going out and looking at those walls every day, and I'm sure every day they got there, those walls looked higher and higher and higher. It's hard for me to believe that the people of Israel would not sit around the campfire at night and talk about, did you see how big that wall is? And remember what kept them out of the promised land the generation before, 40 years before. They saw the same city. They saw the same fruit of the land. They saw that it was a land flowing with milk and honey like God said, like Moses told them. But they said, we can't do it. The job's too big for us. Well, what all of a sudden has made the children of Israel people of faith where their fathers and mothers were not? Seems to me like the only way to be sure is to keep the people quiet all week. And God did that to accomplish his purpose. This is the same type of situation. Now, it was not sickness or disease that caused Zechariah to be silent. It was just the hand of the Lord upon him. That's kind of like the situation over in Acts chapter 13 when Paul on his first missionary journey, first place that he sailed to and preached the gospel, he comes upon a sorcerer that's influencing and has great influence over the magistrate of the city and the region he was in. And he tried to subvert the truth. He tried to keep the magistrate from believing in Jesus. And so Paul just simply said, the hand of the Lord be upon thee, and thou shalt not see the sun for a season. And he was blinded, not by sickness or disease. God doesn't use sickness or disease. It's not his. That's what belongs to the devil. But the hand of the Lord was upon him, and there was a mist that fell upon him, fell around his eyes. And he wasn't able to see for a certain period of time. We don't know how long. So we've got similar situations and similar examples to explain what's happening here. So as verse 20 says again, Behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. 
Because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. Can you imagine Zacharias going through all the hand motions and everything trying to, trying to point out angel big, mouth shut. And he remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days whereupon he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth. She hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Notice the difference in Zacharias and Mary. Mary simply says, How shall this be? Since I haven't been with a man. And the angel explains it to her. I'm not sure that explanation would pass muster with a lot of people. It still leaves a lot of questions to be asked. Like, for example, what does overshadowed by the Holy Ghost mean? And it's also interesting to me that Mary does not assume, even initially, she does not assume that the child that Gabriel is talking about is going to be hers and Joseph's. She recognizes straight out, right out of the gate. She recognizes that he's talking about a supernatural, even a miraculous occurrence. And you can't tell me, there's nobody that would be able to convince me that she had this all figured out. That the account that the angels give us, that Luke gives us, that Gabriel said. And again, who's going to know what's been said other than Gabriel and Mary? He has to have interviewed Mary. He has to have talked to her about this. But no matter what she did not know, no matter what she did not have explained to her, She accepted my faith. Be it unto me even as you've spoken.
Let's keep reading. Verse 39. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. And entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. Remember, she's six months pregnant now. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Folks, I want you to understand something. The first human being that recognized Jesus was an unborn child. Let that sink in for a bit. And she spake out loud. And she spake out with a loud voice. And said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is he is she that believed. For there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now, folks, if this Bible account is accurate, if it's true, thank God it is. But if it's true, and Elizabeth is six months pregnant, that means Mary is just barely pregnant. When does life begin? That's the question everybody asked about abortion, didn't it? Well, the six-month-old baby in, well, how did you say that? She's been pregnant for six months. So certainly that's a living being because of its reaction. But Jesus has to be a living being too when she's just brand newly pregnant or has just conceived. Now I know a lot of, a lot of people aren't going to accept the Bible as their stance on abortion or anything else for that matter. But the Bible certainly does give us some hints, doesn't it? Verse 46. You thought I was kidding when I said I was going to read the whole thing. <laughs> Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty has done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has hoped his servant Israel in remembrance of thy mercy. As he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. 
And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, not so, but he shall be called John. Got a question for you. How does she know? Zacharias has been dumb, unable to speak, but the entirety of her pregnancy. How does she know? Did he write her a note? That would have been the only way she could have known unless she got some additional information from the Lord along the way. So his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of your kindred that are called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came upon all them that dwelt round about them. And all these things were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, I want you to realize, folks, this is the first prophecy that's happened in 400 years. Zechariah prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore under our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone unto his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Actually, that verse is translated better, peace toward men of goodwill. Jesus said himself he didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. He's talking about the division that would occur in families and in communities. Some receiving and accepting Jesus as Messiah, others rejecting him. So really what this is saying is peace toward men of goodwill, not peace toward all men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even into Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in their heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Now, folks, I want you to recognize something. Let me back up a couple of verses here to verse 12. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. How much does that give him? How much information does that give him, them, the shepherds, to be able to find a baby that was born? See, there's a lot about this story that we don't know because we don't understand the customs of the day. There's a lot about this story that is left out for for a Western mentality, Western mindset. The fact that they're in Bethlehem is significant for a couple of reasons. The one is certainly identified in the scriptures that we read about being the house of David, or the city of David, I should say. But the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And remember, Jesus said that he was the bread of life. One of the times that he got into most trouble with the people that followed him is when he instructed them and told them Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Well, the hearers of that are thinking naturally, the Jewish people, the multitudes, they're thinking he's talking about cannibalism. And that's very, very strictly forbidden in scriptures. But Jesus is talking about the sacrifice that he would make on the cross. So here where it says the sign is the swaddling clothes, it doesn't tell us That the angel said, now go into the city on on Tiberius Way. Fourth house on the left, look in the stable in the back. Third stall from the right, you'll find the Messiah. The reason why this angel didn't have to give them that kind of instruction is because they knew exactly where he was talking about. See, these shepherds are not ordinary shepherds. The shepherds in Bethlehem were the temple priests, the temple shepherds. It was a function of the priesthood to take care of the animals, the sheep that were to be born and that were cared for in the, the uh, uh, fields around Bethlehem because those were the animals that would serve as the sacrifices 
So when he talks about the swaddling clothes being a sign, the shepherds know full well where, he's, where the angel is referring to Jesus being. Jesus is, was born in a cave that was carved out of the Judean hillsides, specifically for the purpose of taking care of and keeping sheep in the fields surrounding that area because it was so close. Bethlehem was such close proximity to Jerusalem. Then people that traveled from great distances to come and bring a sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice, for example. They didn't bring something with them. Most didn't anyway. Because on the long and arduous journey, however long they had to travel, it would be almost impossible to keep a lamb or a sheep from getting blemished or injured or something. And then they would have wasted their time bringing the animal with them that had to buy another animal close by anyway. That's what these sheep were. That's who these shepherds were. Now the time of year that they were operating couldn't have been winter because they wouldn't have been abiding in the fields with their sheep. And we shouldn't get caught up with was December the 25th really Jesus' birthday? The important thing is he was born, not what day he was born. And so when the shepherds, which good shepherds have to keep sheep on the move. You take them to one field or one pasture for a period of time and then you have to move them before the sheep eat everything all the grass in the field down to the roots to where there won't be any more grass that will grow. So shepherds were constantly moving their flocks. They'd get to a point where a field or a pasture would be grazed or grazed over and they had to move them so as not to keep any further grass from, from ever growing again. That's the fields that these guys were in. And apparently they weren't right next to the city of Bethlehem, but they were in one of the distant fields or pastures. So when the angel says that the sign would be the swaddling clothes, they understood everything about that. Because when the lambs were, were born, apparently for a first, the first few hours after the birth of a newborn lamb. These lambs are skittish. They're wobbly on their feet. They're uncertain and unsure. And so the, the shepherds would wrap them up in these tight cloths, wrap the legs individually, wrap the body in such a way that the lambs couldn't jump around or fall or get themselves hurt or blemished in any way. Because remember, for a temple sacrifice, it has to be without spot and blemish. So their job, their primary job, as soon as the lamb is born, is to wrap this thing up in such a way that they cannot hurt themselves or mar their coats in any way. So when the angel says, the sign will be that he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, they immediately know. That's what we do to lambs to protect them so that they're worthy sacrifices. Now these lambs that were used 
Four sacrifices were used for the morning daily sacrifices. They were used for burnt offerings, which means they could be used on the Day of Atonement. The female lambs that were born could be used for peace offerings, not the male, but the female. And they would certainly be used for the Passover. So when the angels announce the birth of Jesus, they say the sign is you'll see him prepared just as the Passover sacrifice. So the shepherds go to where they know he's going to be. The manger was a stone feeding trough in in Bethlehem at least. The manger was a stone feeding trough that was used first as a wash down sink and then secondly as a place of holding and capturing the lambs for a short period of time then after that used as a feeding trough Jesus stands for all of those things and that was the sign and they get what that means folks The sign of Jesus' birth was his preparation for death. Throughout the last number of years, there's been great debates and arguments and strife over nativity scenes. And you know the political fallout attached with all of that that we've all heard about. But for the people that the Lord revealed it to in that day, the message was that a sacrifice had been born. Not just a lamb that would be offered for Passover but the Lamb of God. So they went immediately to where he was. They didn't have to wonder. They went immediately. And they found him. Just as the angel said that they would. Now the Bible says that the shepherds, let me read this again. Verse 20. Well, let me back up to verse 18. Now, let me back up to verse 16. Okay, how about verse 15? I'm not going any further than that. Verse 15. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. The the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. I want you to get that. They're not staying quiet about this. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, 
glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Now, the same thing is true in this part of the story. Joseph, Mary's husband, died somewhere along the way. We don't see anything of him after Jesus was 12 years old. So the only ones that are going to know what happened there are Mary and the shepherds. And so for Luke to give us an account, he has to have interviewed Mary. Maybe he even found some of the shepherds. But here's my question. Why did the shepherds, seeing these things, why did the shepherds let Jesus get away from them? What about the people that they spread the news abroad to? How did they let these things get away? Well, the answer is simple. And without bringing an indictment against them, it's the same as how things operate in our lives. We let things get away. We fail to give the attention to certain spiritual things and spiritual truths and, well, everything of the spirit realm, in my opinion. It's easy to let things get away from you, aren't they? But even when Jesus begins his ministry some 30 years later, what about these shepherds? They were priests. And there was kind of a rotating operation as far as what the priests would do at different times. My point is these temple priests, shepherds, would not have stayed shepherds all their lives. They would have graduated or moved up in the duty roster among the priests. So 30 years later, when Jesus comes on the scene, why aren't any of these shepherds, at least one of them, stepping up and saying, wait a minute, remember way back when? This is who was prophesied. This is who the angels celebrated and gave glory to. Where are these guys? There's another similar situation as the Bible talks about at Jesus' crucifixion or his resurrection, I should say, I guess. It says that Jesus, when he was resurrected, not only appeared to his disciples, but again, I believe it's Luke's account. One of the last things that he said is that Jesus was seen of more than 500 people at one time to be alive. Now, King James doesn't say at one time, but the words that are used indicates that it's talking about it in one setting. Well, if over 500 people have seen Jesus resurrected and raised from the dead alive after the crucifixion took place, why are there only 120 in the upper room? Where are the other 380? What are they doing? What's going on in their lives that's more important than this man that was dead and now is alive? This miracle worker who died at the hands of the the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin, but now raised from the dead. Where are these people? Folks, I believe that's one of the greatest warnings that we have in the Bible. No matter how supernatural something is, no matter how miraculous something is that takes place, 
we have to actively choose to make the most important things important, to keep the most important things important. And there's nothing more important than your spiritual well-being. There's nothing more important than your future. There's nothing more important than your salvation. There's nothing more important than all that that salvation entails. No matter what we think, no matter our upbringing, no matter what. Jesus came to this earth for one and only one purpose, and that was to die in our place. Now, before he died in our place, he showed us the Father. He showed us how good our Father is. But it was all about, and he understood this. He never lost sight of this. He understood that his purpose to be on this earth was to die in your place and mine. Thank God he did. I hate that he had to. But I love that he did. For without that death, we could not have life. Maybe that was the reason, or one of the reasons, why in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 came back after going into the cities and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing the sick in the cities that would receive them. They came back rejoicing and saying, Lord, even the devils are subject to us in your name. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. But then he said something very interesting. He said, but in this rejoice not that the devils are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your plan of redemption. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. We worship you, Master. You died in our place. A debt paid that we owed. And the horrors associated with that death, that price, are beyond our comprehension. But Lord Jesus, you knew exactly what you were doing. You knew what it meant. You, meant, you knew what it would cost. You left your place of eternity. The power and the glory that you had throughout all eternity to come to the earth and die our death. To exchange your eternal life for spiritual death. Putting yourselves in the hands of your Father, even as the Word instructs us to do. To trust Him to bring you back to life. Which He did. Now we can have that same life.
we can walk in that same righteousness. We can experience that same glory of your spirit within us. Let us never lose sight of the price that was paid for us. Let us never lose sight of the meaning of that eternal life that we have. Let us never lose sight of the greater one that indwells us and the victory that has been won. We love you, Father. We thank you for guiding us into all truth. Father, my prayer for each of these people and every person under the sound of my voice is that this Christmas would be one where we would come to know Jesus like never before. That our relationship with our Savior would grow and take on new meaning for each and every one of us. We love you, Lord Jesus. We magnify you. We worship you. We exalt you as our risen Savior. We exalt you, Lord Jesus, as the Most High God, the creator of heaven and earth, and the deliverer from all of our enemies. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. Let's all stand, please. Let's lift our hands to him and lift our hearts one more time. Just tell him how much you love him. Blessed be your name, Lord. Only you. Nobody else could have done it for us. Only you. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. We serve a good God. And we follow a risen Savior. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Don't forget there's no healing school tonight. But the Christmas Eve service is tomorrow night. I'm not sure what time it is. Six? Is that it? Six? Come be with us if you can. It's just a short service and we'll let you get on to the other things you have going on. So we look forward to seeing you there. God bless you. Have a great day.